Um, welcome to uh, 8-3 Notes. Uh, I am Mr. Vosliatis. I'm Mr. Copeland. Back for the promise and turmoil of the 1960s. The reunited. So we're going to divide... so good. We're going to divide this audio lecture into two parts. The first part will be on foreign policy policy exclusively, and the second part will be exclusively on domestic policy. Yeah, a lot to get to. Um, We're going to have to start off here. Right after the election in 1960, we're going to have to start off with Nixon, and um, you know he's running for president for the Republican nomination, but he was Eisenhower's vice president, and his role as vice president played a huge role in the way in which the um, JFK administration gets started off on foreign policy. And some of you are trying to you're trying to probably wonder like why are we talk about the election of 1960? You would think that's more of a domestic policy issue. Well, here's the thing: it's in kitchen debates. Uh, you know, Nixon had the opportunity to visit Moscow, or one of the very few Americans during the time to do so, to go behind the Iron Curtain, so to speak. And he's going to start to debate with the Prime Minister of the Soviet Union, uh, Nikita Khrushchev at the time. Mm -hmm. Now, Nikita Khrushchev is no Stalin, but he's still tough, pragmatic, and he still wants to to check, you know, capitalistic expansion from his point of view. So are they debating... Like, who has a better kitchen? What are they debating about? Yeah, so, Why is it called kitchen? Yeah, that's a good question. So the kitchen debates is basically uh, it's a series of debates that, 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 that contest the merits of capitalism versus socialism. Mm-hmm. So in other words, you know, Nixon really wanted to prove how more qualitative that economic system is over socialism by showing how many better products are allowed in, in a free market yeah, system. Sometimes in politics you hear about, like, kitchen table issues, things that are going to, you know, affect everyday Americans. And what Nixon is trying to prove is that because of our system of uh, our economic system, our people are better served than under their system. Right, and he's going around saying like, look how you know, look how great this toaster is in, in capitalistic society. This, these are well functioning. Uh, you know, we, we we can offer this to all working class Americans. You know, we mentioned in one of my classes like uh, because many times that economy is judged by GDP. All of a sudden, right. the communism is you know in in Soviet Union, they're forced to try and meet right. our level of production. But then one of the things that falls off is the quality. Well, we're, and that's why we're selling. It's like you might have the same amount, but right. you're not going to be able to keep up. Because it's not the same. Well, quality. we're going from being judged from GDP to you know QVC. This sounds oh, like a show, yeah. right? You know, like <laughs> people are selling. You know, Nixon becomes more of a salesperson in, in in pitching you know capitalism throughout the world. But another way, the reason why we're talking about this in foreign policy is that Khrushchev um, came to the conclusion that Nixon is kind of like a hardliner, mm-hmm. um, as we've already known in our in our sphere of influence. But not going to be easy to deal with. Absolutely yeah. not. And because of that, he's going to have some sort of like I guess begrudging respect for the new newfound rival. Yeah. Why are we underscoring? that is Nixon didn't win the 1960s election that shows you how Russian culture works it's all about power it's all about strongmen but like as you said he's anticipating Nixon winning because he's the vice president not how it happens the upset almost I guess you could say JFK winning and you can draw a parallel to like the you know modern day example between Emmanuel Macron the Prime Minister of France and of course uh, you know Donald Trump in, in their like awkward like you know hand grip and you have people like determining like kisses. what's going on <laughs> yeah, kisses the weird dandruff brush over so this this is something that is found in, in foreign policy even today but just know that the kitchen debates really underscores the hardline approach that Nixon had to Khrushchev and when Kennedy wins the election of 1960 yeah. Khrushchev has to change his calculus he's to yeah. change his strategy on how to handle the United States and well, to be but- honest with you he wasn't impressed with uh, with John F. Kennedy well, at all. Well, especially, like we said, because of the way Russia views strength is everything. Right. The first thing JFK does creates the Peace Corps. 
<laughs> not showing a lot of strength there. So Khrushchev is judging him by his first actions, and he's saying, what is this guy who wants to go peace and love and save the world? Like, who is he? And also in a, in a biographical standpoint, I mean, Khrushchev worked his butt off and up to the upper echelons of the Communist uh, mm, Party, right? He was yeah. a part of the peasant class in some godforsaken part of, you yeah. know, Russia. Yeah. And what was Kennedy? Yeah, rich kid from Boston. Exactly. His so he was a millionaire. He he embodied everything that mm -hmm. Khrushchev stood against. So yeah. you know, he, he was kind of like a walking advertisement to sure. a socialist like Khrushchev. So the reason why we talk about this is again, he's looking at like Mr. Cope was saying, the Peace Corps. He's kind of making and determining what type of leader. Uh, JFK is. But I have to say, the Peace Corps is not all peace, lo peace love, and happiness here. There's a strategic uh, reason for establishing the Peace Corps. Well, it's, gonna, it's part of the containment policy. It's like we want to convince the world that we are doing better, we are doing good around these in these developing nations. By having these good relationships with these developing nations, they'll be less likely that they would fall to communism. Absolutely. It's part of the under the whole mindset of containment under the Cold War. Absolutely. It's a, it's a PR campaign. What better way to show the merits of capitalism also by saying, hey, we're so generous we can like help these destabilized regions and third world nations. Yeah. He's also going to set up the Alliance for Progress, which will promote land reform and economic development in Latin America. Remember, this kind of coincides with uh, FDR's policy, the Good Neighbor policy. Now, we know the Good Neighbor policy was mostly generated to stop or thwart the expansion of totalitarian regimes in the 1930s, but you see kind of Kennedy emulating this, but in this time the enemy is the Soviets. So, mm -hmm. you know, a strong, stabilized Latin American Soviet America is a capitalistic yes. democratic one. Exactly. It's diff It will be much more difficult for communism to spread there if they are doing well. He's going to go ahead in 1962 and he's going to persuade Congress, as you're reading, to pass the Trade Expansion Act. This is, again, a very interesting and very re you know repetitive concept that we've seen since Woodrow Wilson, free trade. And again, it's the idea of stabilizing these markets, particularly in West Europe, to make sure that Russia is not expanding. Yeah, so that brings us to 1961 where we have the building of the Berlin Wall. And the backstory for that is there's a meeting in Vienna. All right, Khrushchev meets JFK, and it's the first time they're face-to-face. -face. And it's an effort for him to try and test the rich, spoiled kid from Boston that he detests, that he's not happy with uh, and not impressed by. So this young president, he tries to make the move and saying, you are to leave Western Berlin. We need you and the Western democracies out. You know, he's concerned about the environment of Berlin and takes a shot, hoping that he can push him around. Absolutely, and, and you also have to understand a little bit about the state of affairs of Berlin. For many reasons, there's a real there's a real legitimacy for Khrushchev to push out Western influence there because at this point, Eastern Berlin is not doing so well economically or politically. And especially with Western Berlin right there showing you the gateway to the West, it's enticing for people, if they're not doing well in East Berlin, to cross over into Western territory. And it also serves as a symbolic you know, uh, site of the, the beginnings of Cold War tensions dating back all the 1940s. I don't want to be crude, but Khrushchev being a, from the peasant class often used very crude metaphors and he basically would you know refer constantly to his acolytes of West Berlin as the testicles of the West. <laughs> and all you would need is to squeeze to bring it to its knees. Yeah. So I, 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 this, these, are, these are actual quotes. I don't know how he translated it or not. but If you say so. Yeah. <laughs> but in any case, he uh, demanded U.S. troops to be pulled out, and of course, Kennedy, being a young, hot-blooded uh, newbie in, yeah. in the scene, refuses. He was smart enough to refuse. Of and course. you're never gonna. Your first maneuver with your, you know, arch enemy is not going to be to back down. Absolutely. So I don't understand really Khrushchev's line of thinking in the sense that what American president, regardless of what you thought about them, would fall for this trick. 
Absolutely, and of course, so in response to that, he ca- he has to Khrushchev save face in in, in in the face of Kennedy's refusal, so he forms the construction of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, the PR campaign with the Peace Corps, the entire Cold War, in many sense, in many ways, was a PR campaign. Constant tension between the Soviets and the United States over who is really winning, since we never really fought. So, as you mentioned, the concern is so many people leaving from East Berlin into West Berlin, and the construction of the wall, it wasn't his first option, he was hoping to get the Americans out, but the construction of the wall now is a necessary evil for him to, to um, deal with to prevent that PR disaster of the constant bodies going from east to west. And that wall will quite literally bodies, yeah. represent continued tensions all the way to its uh, destruction of in 18, uh, excuse me, 1989, yeah. even though the Soviet Union won't collapse until 1991, uh, historians have marked that date you know, 1989 as the end of the Cold War. So you can see why um, we're using this, you know, this this figurative, you know, um, fixture in in this, you know, this city mm-hmm. as a means of uh, measuring Cold War tensions. Yeah. I mean, that that brings us up to the Bay of Pigs invasion. So um, during the Eisenhower years, we talked about covert options, uh, covert um, operations, operations. Thank you that the CIA was involved in. Right. And this is another uh, example of that, that the, the CIA is working with anti-communist exiles who had been uh, removed from Cuba and uh, fled for their safety, and they're training them to invade Cuba to hopefully overthrow the communist government of Fidel Castro. And because Kennedy is the new president, a lot of this plan is going to be like made in the marks from the Eisenhower, as Mr. Copeland said, and it's going to transition into him. So a lot of these people, the big military brass and the director of the CIA and all these CIA operatives, are going to kind of pressure Kennedy to greenlight this, to approve this uh, operation. And one of the interesting things is, after this operation, Kennedy never trusted his, the Joint Chiefs of Staff completely, this, the, completely uh, from this point on. He would rely on his brother, the Secretary of State, a little bit more, and he focused on his inner, inner circle because the concern here is he trusted them, they let him down, and he was the one that had to take the blame for it. And the issue is, and I've mentioned this a few times during the year, is that often military men, when they're given the option to go in with an operation, attack, or hold off, they train their whole lives to, to, to for hear that go call. They're going to be much more eager to um, say, yes, this is going to work out, Mr. President. So that's what the Bay of Pigs is, and it's a, a public embarrassment for Kennedy and for America. And you have to also keep in mind, you know, what, as we're departmentalizing the executive branch, particularly in foreign policy, you're not only having a lot of people making decisions that are very powerful, but these people are making decisions with very limited scrutiny. Furthermore, there is not only one ego in there, and I have to make that very clear. You know, John F. Kennedy is not the only one who has a tremendous amount of ego. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of internal conflict going on within the National Security Council meetings. And the fact that he was so young also mm-hmm. affected these meetings. Because a lot of these career military leaders and commanders and generals, they are making, like, in my 40 years of experience as a military official, this is going to work, Mr. President, I promise you. So part of it was his instincts were we maybe shouldn't. He admitted that later on. um, But he allowed them to convince him to say go, and that was part of the the problem here. So Fidel Castro... it was my understanding that there might have been a leak involved. They were aware that we were coming, right? And they were prepared for the invasion. Absolutely. And when these, like you know, uh, you know, anti-communist Cubans uh, either try to retreat or seek some sort of support from the United States, we were nowhere to be found because, again, it's a covert operation. We yeah. we don't want the world to see how we're blatantly disregarding our long-standing pro- po- policy that released 
rhetorically purporting self-determination. We don't want to come across as being hypocritical to our values. Why? It's a PR war, folks. This is perfect fodder for the Soviets to to capitalize on, if you will. And there's some conservatives uh, that were criticizing JFK simply because when he saw that this operation was in peril, he didn't decide to help because of that issue. You're always having to worry about optics. Optics matter. Right. So the Bay of Pigs invasion was a disaster. It's also going to embolden Fidel Castro to appeal to more support from the Soviet Union. It's also going to kind of message to Khrushchev that if he was silly, a silly boy in Vienna, he is a silly, stupid boy in his operations or his management style in the Bay of Pigs, which kind of continued and, and gave him permission, or at least from Khrushchev's point of view, permission to continue funding uh, military and missile construction on the island of Cuba. And it really just encouraged him. Right. That JFK did not represent a, a strong, confident leader at this moment. He was being attacked from within his own country politically. Uh, and it was a, an opportunity for Khrushchev. He knew that he'd be able to continue on with this um, program, as you mentioned. So we're going to see, like, after in October 1962, when we start to see spy planes take photographs of missile silos constructed in, in on the island of Cuba, mm-hmm. you, know, uh, you know, the president's going to have to have a decision to make. Several decisions that are obviously going to be, uh, you know, supported by various groups within the Security Council meeting. Mm-hmm. So you've got some people really pushing for immediate invasion. Indeed. You got some people for pushing for military strike, or you have some people pushing for just a blockade. Now there's a variety of yeah. di- pros and cons to each, but because of his experience at the Bay of Pigs, he decides to be a little bit more strategically patient mm-hmm. and initiate a blockade instead of striking. Yeah. Why? Well, the missiles at this time were not that accurate. What happens if you miss one? Yeah. The, that would just justify Cuba or the Soviets to launch a, a missile at us. So we couldn't take that chance. We were at the brink of war. If you've noted last lecture, we talked about the concept called brinkmanship. Mm-hmm. This is a Exactly, brinkmanship, bringing two countries to the point of fighting each other. And it was the closest we ever came. And the interesting thing is Kennedy was uh, stressed with that decision, take no action, which would make America seem weak. Right. Right. Or take the aggressive action of invasion or or, uh, attacking through the air, as you mentioned. And the attack uh, option was something that our military advisors actually uh, were were um, proposing. That was the initial one. And he said... There is some other plan here that we are not talking about. Give me some other option. I cannot have just do nothing or strike. Right. Give me some other option. And then there was eventually that idea for the blockade. What if we just prevent the transport of these uh, missiles that are coming across the Atlantic from getting there? Okay. Eventually, after three, 13, excuse me, excruciating days of just blockade and standoff between the, you know, the Russian naval forces and the United States naval forces, there was a secret diplomatic channel that was linking the Kremlin and DC together, and they kind of secured a deal between Khrushchev and JFK. And the deal is quite simple. JFK would agree to withdraw missiles from Turkey as long as the Soviets agree to withdraw missiles from Cuba. Yes, and the, when we talk about channels, and back channel, that term, that expression, you know, the, the major leaders, the major players could not be involved in this discussion. It had to go on at, you know, somewhere in the State Department behind the scenes 
And publicly, everyone was petrified that we were about to go through our World War III was about to start. And because of the, these events and how close we were to get into World War III, as Mr. Copeland said, this brinkmanship is going to cause JFK to reevaluate Cold War strategy that we call now flexible response. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a pivot or a shift away from what you've learned before, massive retaliation by Eisenhower. Yeah, mutual assured destruction. Right. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to build, again, more conventional arms and military forces, your traditional army units, maybe perhaps smaller special ops, the Green Berets, for example, the Rangers. But what that does is it plays into the fact that we all now have more, similar to Korea, proxy wars throughout uh, Asia and eventually in Afghanistan. We have Vietnam coming up as the major conflict, which is one of the ways in which this plays out. Remember, you can imagine that the people that are, you know, in charge or profiting from the military-industrial complex is salivating at the thought of these Cold War strategies. So always keep that in the back of your mind. I don't want to get too conspiracy theorist like but, as much as I can, but I need you to understand that there's, there's an incentive here, there's a profit motivation there is an for influence. continuing yeah. proxy wars across yeah, the region. Yeah, there is an influence in the fact that so many people had so much money to make if we were to go, just like big businesses had an influence on government in the past. This is another form of of big business, the influence of the military-industrial complex. And with that, we will turn to Vietnam under LBJ. All right, welcome back to A Pot Upon a Hill. I'm Mr. Copeland. I'm Mr. Vasiliadis. And uh, we're going to try and walk through the Vietnam War in all of its glory and really focus on some of the bigger picture ideas, but also all the little details that helped that small conflict explode into a one of the longest wars in our history and a major issue. Um, so sometimes when we think about this, it's all about the Vietnam War protests. Yeah, we, right. we, we associate with the counterculture that you're gonna, we're going to talk about in the other podcast about domestic culture at, at home. But um, the Vietnam War is something that, from my view, I think is in some ways the culmination of some of Eisenhower's fears. Mm. The culmination of what... The domino ca- theory, perhaps. Well, the domino theory, the fear of the spread of communism, right. containment being so important right. that even if there isn't a real reason to go to war, we do. And I think it plays containment and the domino theory play a major role in it, obviously. But the, the fear of the military-industrial complex mm. influencing policy rather than policy and decisions by our elected officials determining when we go to war. When, when do businesses and when do the war machine that we've created after World War II have too much power and too much influence to keep us in a war that maybe we want to get out or maybe get us into a conflict that we should never have been in. So the, the Vietnam War creates a lot of, um, it's kind of a, along with Watergate and other events of the 1960s, it's kind of a, a really turning point in our history in terms of government, um, the American people trusting their government mm. because we've been lied to several times in our history. The Vietnam War is one of them right. in terms of whether or not we are ab- are winning the war with the Pentagon Papers, which we'll get into, and whether or not the ev- things that we are claiming to be achieving are actually happening. Right? And I also think, and I totally agree with you, and I also think we should men- note that this is also a not only turning uh, a, a, ter- a shift in public opinion mm-hmm. or, you know, for, to the most part, public opinion in the trusting of government, but it's also a shift in the relationship between the media and the government. If you remember since... You know the Spanish-American War mm-hmm. in you know uh, eighteen ninety-eight. Uh, sure, 
you we understand this concept called yellow journalism. Yes. And we also know about people like Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hertz, and we know the the quote, you know, you know, I'll furnish the pictures and you'll furnish the war. We, we that's a time period in which the media cooperated with the government to kind of shape public opinion to push and pressure us to go to war. Now, working in tandem now all of a sudden, the original role the way in which the First Amendment, the free press, is supposed to act is as a check to make sure that power, as, as speaking truth to power, to make sure power can't uh, abuse the authority they have. Yeah, holding the federal government accountable for the actions that they may or may not commit. Yeah. So we're going to kind of like uh, do a little bit of a background story on the Vietnam, because I think, it, as you're saying, it, de- it deserves mentioning. So in order to understand Vietnam, we have to understand a little bit about colonialism. As you've read in your other notes, that we know that Vietnam was not called Vietnam always. It was known as a general, broader region known as Indochina. French Indochina. Right, French Indochina. It was owned, and it kind of was made up of Vietnam, uh, another country that will later be made, Cambodia, and of course Laos. So this is a general region, and uh, during World War II, the Japanese briefly took over Indochina, and the French uh, managed to regain control of their colony. But as you know about Pakistan and India and other parts throughout northern Africa, most of the colonies are going to cite the often rhetorical exclamation of self-determination outlined in the Atlantic Charter by Roosevelt, mm-hmm. and they're going to want to push for independence. Vietnam is no different. So they're going to push for independence, and they're going to try to achieve it in 1945. The French are not going to sit down quietly to this, and they're going to have this contention. And one of the popular factions that are pushing for independence is uh, led by a man named Ho Chi Minh. Mm -hmm. Now, I know in history books we know him as the villain, the person that's responsible for our entry into the Vietnam War. But in the beginning of his political career, he was a bit of a fanboy of the United States. Yeah, Woodrow Wilson. Yeah, there's, he's been around since the early 1900s as a young uh, p- political figure, and he s- desperately sought counsel uh, with Woodrow Wilson when he came to Paris Peace Conference to end World War I. He never got audience, whether or not Woodrow Wilson, you know, snubbed him. Yeah, perfectly, uh, you know, purposely brushed him aside. Or, or, now, yeah. or was accidental, we don't know, but it starts from there. And a continued hypocrisy of the United States as, as the way that the international community sees us is going to breed resentment where Ho Chi Minh is going to eventually kind of neglect or like um, see democracy not as a legitimate uh, political uh, system but one of hypocrisy and he's going to try to take the alternative and be more communist leaning. But at this point the enemy for Ho Chi Minh are the French. Mm -hmm. And it's going to kind of culminate at the end of the French withdrawal in 1954. And that's really important because 1954 is when we start to kind of get involved in Vietnam. We we have, all of a sudden we make the decision to try and send political advisors. You know, the the issue of containment becomes uh, one that is now spread to Vietnam. We, we want to try and influence some of the political uh, leanings that are going on on the ground. What's interesting, whenever all forces, uh, France, French, the, the, the Ho Chi Minh's forces, um, and other factions within Vietnam and the United States and all these imperialistic powers met at the Geneva Conference, everyone had two proposals. One, to divide it along the 17th parallel between North and South. Mm-hmm. Keep it divided. Sounds where, familiar. Right, to keep <laughs> the Ho Chi Minh in power up to the North where uh, the French would own the South. The second proposal was more revolutionary. Keep a unified Vietnam and they would host free elections. Well, the United States is going to support the first one. And while the French was not able militarily, politically, and economically to sustain a presence in South Vietnam, 
we will take on that role. We will the, the torch will be passed to us, mm-hmm. so to speak. So we're going to continue to prop up a government in South Vietnamese. And particularly, we're going to prop up a leader called Nong Dien Dim. Mm-hmm. And this guy is Catholic, so he has some sort of cultural connection to us in the West. But he's a He's a, in, a, in lack of a better word, he's a bad guy. He's very corrupt. He is a totalitarian. He uses totalitarian, brutal policies. You were on mentioning the before he sided with and helped the Japanese during he, the during World War II. He was a Japanese collaborator. So you know, again, this kind of emboldens Ho Chi Minh and solidifies his impression that the United States is not exactly promoting the democracy in which we claim to have do. So this this is the background as to why Ho Chi Minh is going to kind of consolidate 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 his Vietnam, and they're going to call their rebel group the Viet Cong and they're going to try to unify Vietnam under the pretext of communism but of course elected communism sure like popular um, popular support right communism is important to him now one of the other things which I think is crucial to focus on before we even get into the uh, United States getting um, forces on the ground is the Vietnamese had a long culture of resistance whether it be the Chinese whether it be the French and now eventually the Americans. So in many ways, we look at this conflict as how could we have possibly had any issues with our military superiority, you know, fighting in a, um, a jungle. Yes, we understand the guerrilla warfare tactics, it was difficult. But with the planes, with the force, the, the level of the size of the forces we have, plus, you know, the weaponry that we have, how is it possible that we are not able to be victorious? You know, and that's very important to remember also, this is the first war we lose. Right. Everything else, armistice in Korea, this is the first war we lose. This is and that's why this matters so much, too. So significant repercussions, not only to our po- pol- political future, but our, our foreign policy. Uh, in, and how in we the address years. the rest of the world. So, you know, this problem, this issue with South Vietnam and North Vietnam kind of falls under Eisenhower's plate. Then, of course, the, the buck is passed to Kennedy. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that brings us to the beginning of our involvement. So in the early stages of the war, you know, the buildup starts with Kennedy. Right, and he obviously, because every Cold War president is forced to adopt the domino theory, and that extends to Vietnam as well. So he's going to support the South Vietnamese regime, and the the term is we use in terms of the members of our military that we are sending is not troops, soldiers. No, we're sending military advisors. And for those of you that can't see, I'm doing using my air quotes right now. Um, Military advisors are sent in 1963. We have about. 16,000 U.S. troops in South Vietnam at that point. A little bit more than that, you know. So, um, No Dien Diem was not popular at this moment, and he started to lose support from the peasants. And you were mentioning this. It's apparently, I thought it was conspiracy theory, but Kennedy was thinking of assassinating this man because we didn't like the instability there, because instability is opportunity for communism. Yeah, and this is, you made a very good point when I was telling Mr. Copeland about, you know, uh, Kennedy, uh, you know, orchestrating a CIA assassination um, towards this, this towards DM which happened actually a few weeks interestingly enough yeah, before JFK's assassinated um, you know you, you were saying something like well it has nothing to do with taking him out because he's a bad guy you were saying something about taking him out because it is stability yes if, if, if he's unpopular they could have their own revolution communism could happen you know um, organically there if we're trying to influence and containment is our goal 
that we can't have unpopular leaders because then it's it, it, un- instability is going to be opportunity for communism. So Kennedy um, later 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 documentation has has linked Kennedy's uh, involvement. I don't know how intense, how much into the the assassination of Diem, and we're going and this has a significant um, impact on our United States history because it also links you know the covert operations we see in the Eisenhower administration to, to Kennedy, blue eyed boy Kennedy. Right. This the one nice worked boy. out though, unlike the right. Bay of Pigs. <laughs> right. right? It's very so, true. So that brings us to the major event that happens, which leads to the escalation of the war, and that is the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, all right? And it, what it's known as the Gulf of Tonkin, it's in August of 1964. A United States boat is sunk. The issue is how. Right. We don't really know how. The United States administration under LBJ, who has taken over after the assassination of Kennedy, Quickly, his administration links the incident to the Viet Cong forces attacking a United States boat, and he quickly persuades Congress to pass the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which is the ability for him to give, have unilateral power, meaning he needs no one else's approval. Congress is not needed in his efforts to escalate the war. He has unilateral power to respond because it is for our safety. All right. So this Gulf of Tonkin Resolution is the congressional authorization that they give him so he can make once again, here go the quotes. All necessary measures to protect U.S. interests in Vietnam. Guys, it, it's still controversial to this day. Guys, and I, when we we say all necessary measures, it's not just about the deployment of troops. It's basically money. So I want you to imagine if your parents gave you a blank check. Something to do. And, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> and they said, and, and they said, whatever amount of money that you deem necessary, the amount of authority that you have, the autonomy that you have. Is going to be very. It's going to be very tempting to kind of abuse this power. So take whatever you need. Ever you need. It's going to be a, an, an unaccounted. <laughs> it's not going to be accounted for, and it's going to be a plethora of finances and, of course, military. And a lot of the Congress, the, the, the Congress is not going to question a lot of this at this point. They're left out of the conversation, so they don't need to question it. That's but, part of the issue. But let's go back to the sinking of the boat. Yeah, that's important. So that, that's one of the things that is co- still controversial. Is who was firing at this boat? And, you know, it's kind of like the Spanish-American War. If we're itching to go to war, we'll find a reason. We'll to. look for yeah. something, right? Try it right now as an experiment. Try to go throughout the entire uh, school day and just try to see the color yellow. I guarantee you're going to see something. Or, you know, see how many times you see the number three. You're going to see something. So there, we're getting to the point where an incident occurred but we don't know exactly what happened. So here's 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 the whole here's the whole story. August ni- 1964, there's a ship called the USS Maddox, and it's reported that uh, you know a couple of fires were shot, and um, they were they were they, they were like sunk, right? They were being attacked by Viet Cong boats. The report was Viet Cong were the aggressors. Yes. Um, it was dark. The radar blips are not exactly quite accurate, and when the State Department looked for approval or confirmation of the attack, they were looking for confirmation of the attack. Yeah, they weren't trying to find the truth. They were questioning people that were there, saying, "Can you confirm what happened?" And the, the person that they were questioning goes, uh, "Well, this. Uh, I, what exact time are you talking about? All right, this is the wrong person. Let's find somebody that can confirm this for us." They were looking to go to war. They were looking for a fight, and LBJ even commented. Um, a few years later, for all he knew, the Navy could have been shooting at whales out there. But he, they used this incident 
to escalate the war. And, and this is very important for you to understand because we'll talk about, like, well, what's the motive, right? There's always a motive for doing this. So I, we want to establish that the, the link between the attack of the USS Maddox and the passage of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, the entire cause of our full-scale entry into the Vietnam was nefarious yeah. at best. It was nefarious and it was very ambiguous. And no one really took the time to further investigate, nor were there any ways to do so. There was a lot of obstruction to do any further investigation into linking this. And you can link this to the explosion of the USS Maine during the Spanish-American War, in which the Yellow Press really highlighted the Spanish and linked the Spanish to attack our ship, when in fact we now know most likely it was a malfunction. Folks, this is not the first time where information has been given us where we can lead to war and if those of you listening are like me and you care about the lives of our soldiers and our our servicemen excellent you should care why we go to war you should care that war isn't just a flippant decision oh yeah you know what let's do it what the hell no it should be very carefully thought out and all of the um you know to the full extent we should research whether or not we should or should we not and when we make that decision, it should be a, fi- uh, a decision that we are forced into. We should never do it willingly. It should be for our personal, our national security. It should be for the safety of other countries. But we should not be doing it just to go to war for the hell of it. And when we put American lives at risk, you know, our greatest treasure, not to mention the, the financial sacrifices that we make, that is something that really frustrates me and frustrates a lot of Americans, is that when we're going to be willing to do anything simply because we feel like fighting. Yeah, I mean, at the end of to- at the end of this, as we keep on talking about, you got to continue to ask yourself: Was it really worth the fifty eight thousand or so troops dead? Yeah. That could have been your, your 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 friend. That could have been you. That when you come of age, your father, your uncle. I, I'm guessing many of your parents grew up in this age. So ask them about their friends who might have been involved in the Vietnam War. Okay, maybe they'd be a little bit too young, or maybe their older brothers or uncles or things like that. But ask, just see, because. The, the reason why that conflict is significantly different than today's conflicts is that everyone was affected. Everyone knew somebody on their block who was involved, and everyone was thinking and praying about them while they were. So please note that the, the Congress gave the authorization to the president, and this kind of brings us to another point. Where are the strong-minded congressmen that are standing up to this president? Why are they bending over backwards to give him unilateral authority over foreign policy decision makings? Mm. Should there be only one or one cadre of people making these foreign policy decisions? So it tells you a little bit of the time where LBJ was able to kind of pressure and give, you know, uh, pressure these congressmen to give him this power. So really uh, think about that in terms of the resolution. This is not an overreach of executive authority. Mm. It was given to him. He asked for it and he received it. Okay, but it was the evidence in which he used that is the issue. Right. So let's get back to the escalation of the war. In 1965, we authorized something known as Operation Rolling Thunder. Okay, and it kind of the reason why he's doing a uh, it's a bombing campaign, an air bombing campaign, and actually he's playing it safe because here's his dilemma: he wants to save a weak, corrupt South Vietnamese government, but he doesn't want to fully commit troops yep. while looking while not looking weak. So he's going to kind of reconcile those two differences by initiating Operation Rolling Thunder, yeah. which 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 is about what thousands and thousands of tons of napalm mm-hmm. that we kind of just scorched the entire jungle landscape of Vietnam. But the problem is, bombings are very inaccurate, and there's no way of knowing if you're hitting your desired target. Right. And as you said, inaccuracy. But 
they, th these, um, Viet, the Viet Cong had a series of tunnels where they were well protected underneath the ground from some of these bombings. So they would just come out afterwards. So at some point, Operation Rolling Thunder is going to be effective as long as you also have ground support, mm -hmm. right? So you need a combination of air power and ground power, and this is kind of what's going to suck them in. I want you to think the Vietnam War is like a sand pit, like quicksand. Like you, once you dip your toe in, it's going to be very hard to get out of it. So by April, he's going to authorize more of the deployment of U.S. ground for troops for the first time. Yeah. I say for the first time because, yeah, we've had the Green Berets there with Kennedy. No, we had were, military they were, no, 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 advisors. They, they were military advisors. Right, <laughs> right <laughs> exactly. Advisors. Yeah. But first, ground troops. These are your farm boys that are being recruited and, you know, being uh, set up for the draft and whatnot. Mm -hmm. By the end of, you know, 1965, you have more than 184,000 troops. Yeah. That Every time he goes, the military comes back to him, they're asking for more. And once you commit at first, as you mentioned, He's, he doesn't want to look weak, and he doesn't want us to lose. And so, and once again, it's a continued effort to continue to add up more troops. And all of a sudden, the escalation by 67, almost 500,000 troops. And eventually, 1969, 540,000 troops in there. It's, it, it, I know it's, it's, it's perhaps trivial to say it like this, but it's like one of those carnival games that you just want to constantly pay money to because you know maybe the next round you'll get it in. Okay. You'll get that basketball in the hoop, but you know that the carny is just laughing with delight knowing that you're just wasting money. So this is exactly what it is. The Vietnam War is one of those rip-off carny games. What do you agree with that or no? You're no, smiling. Yeah, like you're saying, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just so you guys know that the rims are, are are squished. You can't you can't make the basket anyway. Right. <laughs> it takes a very good shot. All right, but um, the controversy surrounding us. We kind of gotten into this a good amount when we're scrolling down the notes here. The credibility gap, the way in which the American people, World War II, whatever the president said, whatever our government said, it was gospel. People went with it. Right. All right. We, falling in line and supporting uh, supporting doing their duty. Buying their liberty bonds, you know, deal, you know, carpooling, whatever they needed to do to help the effort, they were going to do it. But all of a sudden, we start to question: Is our military personnel, is our federal department officials, all of them, are they involved in some misinformation? Do they have our best interests at, at heart? What are they doing? All right. And so Johnson's reticent to try to be completely con transparent about the military costs and operations. And once he does this, it raises the suspicion, the public suspicion of the war, because now everything's on the table. And we're questioning, why are we there? What are we accomplishing? Right. What, is this worth it, like you mentioned? To the combination of misinformation and also Johnson's hesitancy to kind of completely explain the full details of the war is going to raise public suspicion of the war. And, of course, the media outlets are going to begin to become more, I don't want to say adversarial, but they take on the role in which they were supposed to do in the beginning of our yeah. republic to and hold the government accountable for their actions. And if any of you have seen The Post this year, it has to do with something called the Pentagon Papers. And um, the Pentagon Papers, we'll talk about in 1971 when they come out, but they have to do with the fact that we knew things weren't going in Vietnam, but yet we were telling the American public everything's going great. Right. And that is why um, the Vietnam War is such a controversial topic. S still, despite how controversial it is, it's, it's very obvious that the people go into their respective camps. So people that are going to be hardliners, supporters of the war, they're going to be known as hawks. People that are very against the war, questioning the, the, the legitimacy of our entry into the war, will be known as the doves. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to think of the doves as being like peace or pacifists necessarily. They're just people that are saying, why are we here? Um, why are we supporting the South Vietnamese government? What is our end goal? And hawks are more people that are just going to be continually committed to uh, thwart Soviet influence in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and the notes say it right here. You know, 
the doves are interested in, similar to the way the progressives were in the lead up to World War One. Right. There Very are good, more. Yeah. There are more important issues at home. We should not be, you know, war sacrificing progress. American lives. Yeah. Thousands and thousands of miles away. You could tell that there's a lot of traction. By 1967, someone like Senator Eugene F. McCarthy will challenge LBJ in a 1968 Democratic nomination over entry into Vietnam. So the fact that you have another Democrat even like using the political advantage of being an anti-war dove should tell you that even within the Democratic Party, it's starting to kind of question our entry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons why he's a one-term president is because of the unpopularity of this war. In 1968, he decides to step down and not run for re-election. You know, and that that brings us to one of the major events of the war, known as the Tet Offensive. And for those of you that are not familiar, it's the Lunar New Year, is referred to as Tet. It's a major celebration in South Vietnam, and basically, our military is caught. You know, we dropped the ball. We weren't prepared. Okay, they took advantage of a situation that we knew it was their holiday, so we assumed that they weren't going to be attacking, and they took advantage of that knowledge. So, in January 1968. The Viet Cong launched this surprise attack on the provincial capital, right? And it's the American base is, you know, these men are sitting around drinking, partying, having a good time. Our soldiers are not prepared for this attack. And that is what led to a major uh, assault and success, a successful attack for the Viet Cong here. They regained some territory and significantly damaged the United States um, Viet Cong forces is way in which we strike back for them. And here's the important thing. We eventually regain the territory back. We retake the, you know, these areas and we also do way more damage than the Viet Cong done to us. But the, the way that the television portrayed the event was enough to shock the American electorate and demoralize yeah. our, our, our support for the war. Here we go again. Another reason why we're not being successful in Vietnam. Correct. And this is the probably this is the first time I believe where the, t- the television is going to have such an impact again on the war because prior to this World War Two, World War One, Spanish American War, we relied heavily on cooperative journalists to and give it, us these puff pieces of, of the glories of war. Everything was filtered, so you right. would see newsreels when you went to the movies, but nothing was immediate. Or right. You could be sitting down every night at the six o'clock news and see the recent um, events of and the and you make your own opinion. Yeah. It's just raw data. So it didn't take long for uh, LBJ to kind of want to seek some sort of end to this escalation. Um, However, it's like that sand pit. The Tet Offensive is just going to be another reason for LBJ to want to request 200,000 more troops. Come on, guys. You you can imagine him saying, I'm almost done. We almost got this. But even his own foreign policy advisors start to recommend possible withdrawal. Mm -hmm. In March 31st, 1968... Johnson tells the public he will only resort to limited bombing campaigns instead and seek peace agreements with North Vietnam. And then after that, he will shock the nation that he will not no longer seek re-election. I mean, LBJ is not a moron. He starts to see that he will be the face of this really horrifying, controversial war. And there's no way that he's going to make it back politically. Yeah, and... Um... You know, he was receiving challenges from his own party because the Democratic Party, we've talked about it in terms of the two competing groups, the New Dealers and the Dixiecrats prior to this. But in the 1960s, the, the you know, resistance to the war, the anti-war Democrats became a major um, faction of the Democratic Party. And with Johnson's stances, it was clear that he was not going to win the Democratic nomination, that they, he received challenges. Therefore, rather than have a political, um, you know, 
political loss on such a public stage, he decides to step down and let someone else run. And despite Johnson's willingness or the government's willingness to withdraw troops and only limited bombing campaigns, peace talks broke down in Paris between North Vietnamese forces and South Vietnamese forces, and the battle continued well into the 70s. Yeah, we don't really officially get out until 1975. It's um, one of the things that makes you really question the role of our government, the role of our press, and you should be encouraged, but it really takes an active citizenry above, above all else to prevent things from this happening in the, in the future. That it's really on all of us to make sure that we are applying pressure to prevent something like this occurring again. And with that, that ends our part one of 8-3 Notes.